So welcome, comrades, to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies and our classes on the history of U.S. imperialism, World War I. Um, so this is uh, the second part of the series on the history of U.S. imperialism, something we really want to teach because as American anti-imperialists, as American communists in the imperial core, we need to understand thoroughly the history of this nation's imperialism um, to be able to fight it. What we're going to be learning today is the imperialist nature of World War I and how communists at the time reacted to it. Uh, then we're going to look at the U.S. intervention in World War I and how it furthered U.S. imperialism. And we're also going to be looking at what the United States did in the interwar period between World War I and World War II and how it set up post-World War I institutions and programs that served its interests. So the first section is on the Great War, World War I. And we're going to start off with the untold history of the United States by Oliver Stone on this episode that it showed the Spanish-American War in the beginning part, but the latter part about it is on World War I. So we'll go ahead and watch a couple of clips from this tonight. War is a racket, is what Butler was saying, and World War I was among the most dismal episodes in human history. One of the lesser-known facts of this story is that on the eve of World War I, the banks of the British Empire were in crisis. Britain's economic model of cannibalizing the economies of increasing parts of the globe in order to survive and not investing in its own homegrown manufacturing was failing. Cycles of depression came and went. In contrast, the newly unified German Empire was leading the nations of continental Europe in a new system away from free trade to protectionist measures that encouraged the growth of a domestic industrial base not as dependent on colonization. Germany was competing in the production of steel, electrical power, chemical energy, agriculture, iron, coal, and textiles. Its banks and railroads were growing, and in the battle for oil, the newest strategic fuel that was necessary to power modern navies, Germany's merchant fleet was rapidly gaining on Britain's. England, now heavily dependent on oil imports from the US and Russia, was desperate to find potential new reserves in the Middle East, which were part of the tottering Ottoman Empire. And when the Germans began building a railroad to import this oil from Baghdad to Berlin through their alliances with this Ottoman Empire, Britain was deeply opposed. The interests of their nearby Egyptian and Indian empires were threatened. Enormous unrest in the Balkans, particularly in Serbia, helped block the Berlin-Baghdad Railroad from completion. In fact, it was a minor affair in Serbia that finally set off the chain of events of World War I when the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and his wife were assassinated on the streets of Sarajevo in the baking summer of 1914. The situation deteriorated quickly in a series of complex alliances between competing economic empires led to the greatest war yet in human history. The war was a slaughter from beginning to end on a level incomprehensible to the public. In the first Battle of the Marne in 1915, the British, the French, and the Germans suffered 500,000 casualties each. The war lasted beyond all expectations. 
one brutal single day at the Somme, Britain lost 60,000 dead. France and Germany suffered almost a million casualties during the Battle of Verdun in 1916. Repeatedly ordered to charge into the teeth of German machine guns and artillery, France ultimately lost half of its young men between the ages of 15 and 30. Germany first used poison gas successfully at the Battle of Ypres in April 1915, blanketing French troops along four miles of trenches. The Washington Post reported that French soldiers were driven insane or died from agonizing suffocation. Their bodies turned black, green, or yellow. The British retaliated with gas at Los in September, only to see the wind shift and the gas blown back into the British trenches, resulting in more British casualties than Germany. In 1917, Germany unleashed even more potent mustard gas weapons against the British again at Ypres. The novelist Henry James wrote, The plunge of civilization into this abyss of blood and darkness is a thing that so gives away this whole long age during which we have supposed the world to be gradually bettering. All right, now to talk about World War I, the war to end all wars. World War I was the great clash of imperialist powers of the earth, and it spanned Eurasia, Africa, the Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean, and Atlantic Ocean, and resulted in a loss of about 20 million people, with a further 20 million injured. At this time, this was one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. And uh, just for context, there's only a couple of other conflicts that were deadlier, I think, um, at that point in time. Obviously, World War II was deadlier than that. But I think the Mongol invasions and something else in Eurasia um, was a bit deadlier, but still. Uh, it lasted four years, three months, and two weeks between July of 1914 and November of 1918. It officially began on July 28th, 1914, when Austria declared war on Serbia following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and began shelling Belgrade. Uh, Russia then mobilized in support of Serbia. Germany then moved to begin their Schlieffen Plan, invading Belgium on August 4th then continuing into France throughout August. Russia then attacked German forces in East Prussia. German and British-slash-French colonial forces clashed in Africa and Oceania. And over here is a map of the military alliances in 1914 uh, in Europe, and here's a picture of the trenches that they're in during trench warfare. So 1914 to 1916, there's a little... Um, gift down here that shows the progression of the war uh, in that time. So as World War I went on, the conflicting powers found themselves in a tug of war front lines of Europe, in the trenches and in the waters off of Europe. From 1914 to 1917, neither British, French, nor German forces made any significant advancements. Battles such as the Marne, Verdun, and Somme were mostly meat grinders that showed no results. Battles were underway in Eastern and Southern Europe, as well as the Middle East with the Ottoman Empire. In 1915, Serbia was occupied and Italy changed sides. So you see all of these imperialist powers at the time, um, which were all next to each other, by the way, and they were all the same um, power. None of them necessarily held 
all too much more um, sway over the world than the other. But they were all going at each other. They had all made these alliances as far back as the 1870s. And um, that's where it, it started to clash. And uh, just about the meat grinders of the war real quick. Um, this is where we got things like uh, no man's land and the different things where it was literally like areas of the field where there was constant machine gun fire and constant shelling, like the worst warfare you could endure. And then there was a split in the world communist movement about World War I. Uh, when the war was looming, the social democratic forces in the Second International in Europe decided to support their own respective imperialist governments in the war. This was sharply criticized by the Bolsheviks who, at the time, recognized that this great war specifically was an inter-imperialist conflict and that the correct policy of the socialists was to oppose the war and use the situation as an opportunity to agitate the masses against imperialism and take power. And just before I get to this Lenin quote real quick, I only bring this up because this is just the history around World War One, and this is World War One is the period um, in this series on U.S. imperialism that we're discussing. Now, there's an ultra-leftist trend right now to compare the Ukrainian conflict to World War One, and we don't support that. So I just wanted to make that note um, that this is about World War One, not about today. But Lenin said in 1916, there you have an excellent Marxist formulation, one that fully coincides with our own and fully exposes the present-day Kautsky, who has turned from Marxism to defense of social chauvinism. It is a formulation, we shall have occasion to revert to it in other articles, that clearly brings out the principles underlying the Marxist attitude towards war. War is the continuation of policy. Hence, once there is a struggle for democracy, a war for democracy is possible. National self-determination is but one of the democratic demands and does not, in principle, differ from other democratic demands. World domination is, to put it briefly, the substance of imperialist policy, of which imperialist war is the continuation. Rejection of defense of the fatherland in a democratic war, i.e. rejecting participation in such a war, is an absurdity that has nothing in common with Marxism. To embellish imperialist war by applying to it the concept of defense of the fatherland, i.e. by presenting it as a democratic war, is to deceive the workers and side with the reactionary bourgeoisie. And we have some text from William Z. Foster on World War I, the social democratic betrayal. So it says, World War I, social democratic betrayal, 1914 to 1916. The First World War was an inevitable consequence of the entry of capitalism into its imperialist stage. It was a ruthless clash among big imperialist powers, each fighting for a greater share of the world, its resources, and its markets. They began a battle royale for mutual subjugation or extermination. This struggle, which had previously fought by economic and political means, was now to be decided on the field of battle. The war grew out of the very nature of the capitalist system. Capitalism, based on greed and force, could find no other way than war for resolving the fundamental conflicts among the big powers. The outbreak of the war expressed the working out of the law of the uneven development of capitalism, which was first stated by Lenin. That is, instead of developing at an even pace, the rate of growth and the state of development of all the capitalist countries varied widely in tempo and extent. 
this spasmodic jerky course of capitalist growth inevitably threw the great powers into violent collision with each other to battle out a redivision of the world according to their changed economic and political relationships. After the turn of the century, Great Britain, the pioneer imperialist land grabber, held more foreign territory than Germany, France, Russia, Italy, and the United States combined. But she had already lost her industrial leadership of the world. As Perlow says, between 1899 and 1913, steel production in the United States and Germany increased threefold, while British steel production increased by little more than 50%. British iron production declined. The former industrial leader of the world fell far behind its rivals. Consequently, the rival imperialists were impelled to redivide the world in accordance with the new power relationships, and World War I resulted. All the imperialist powers were war guilty. Germany aimed at seizing colonies from Great Britain and France, and at grabbing the Ukraine, Poland, and the Baltic provinces from Russia. Tsarist Russia fought for the dismemberment of Turkey and the acquisition of the Dardanelles. Britain strove to defeat its great rival, Germany, and also take over Mesopotamia and Palestine. The French wanted the Tsar, Alsace, and Lorraine from Germany. And the United States began to figure that with the weakening of its European rivals, it could dominate the world. The alliance, primarily of Great Britain, France, and Russia, eventually involving the United States, fought against the alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey. All the great powers of the world were finally involved. The war, which 65 million soldiers were engaged, started July 28, 1914, and lasted over four years until November 1918. It cost 10 million soldiers dead, 21 million wounded, innumerable civilian casualties, and it wasted $338 billion in wealth. In this typical capitalist wholesale butchery, the U.S., British, French forces won the war and therewith the power to redivide the world to suit their imperialist greed. World War I was an explosion of basic imperialist tensions. It evidenced the fact that the world capitalist system had begun to sink into a general crisis. The system's internal contradictions had now become so deep-seated and destructive that their working out began to undermine and destroy the capitalist system itself. World War I, by costing capitalism the loss of one-sixth of the world's territory, Russia, to socialism, did irreparable harm to the world's capitalist system. Yeah, I can go ahead and give mine real quick. I just wanted to point out that, you know, at this period of history, you had at least over a hundred years since a lot of the revolutions that resulted in a lot of these bourgeois republics, a lot of these capitalist countries, um, you know, once once feudalism um, was done away with, for the most part, monarchy um, was, you know, disestablished in a lot of places. So this was like the first uh, really big imperialist war um, at the time. And, and some of the characteristics that I think do separate it from what we're going through today is um, all of these countries were basically um, doing the same things in different degrees of success and in different areas, um, taking different parts. Um, the, the thing that separates it from World War II um, and a possible global conflict that's upcoming is that 
um, fascism was not a thing yet. These countries weren't acting in defense of their um, people or their rights. Um, they weren't necessarily being invaded by, you know, this axis of, of fascist powers. Um, and there wasn't a country that had full spectrum dominance over all of the land like the United States supposes itself to have. So that's why, you know, it's it's correct still to look back at World War One as an inter-imperialist war. Um, but not all of the world conflicts that followed shared the same characteristic. I just wanted to put that in there. Uh, well, it was a, it's mostly a question. It's, uh, you know, that there's a noticeable movement within the American, the within America during World War One that was isolationist. Would the communists then progressively have united with these isolationists against World War One, against American intervention? All right, I can answer that. Um, I think that at the time, you know, the anti-imperialist sentiment um, was somewhat isolationist in terms of not getting involved in foreign wars. And at the time for World War I, which was a big imperialist war, um, I think that that would have been the right position um, to uh, say, hey, let's keep the United States out of this war. We don't need to pick sides. We don't need to get involved. Um, you know, later on, the isolationist movement um, before World War II, I think, was somewhat reactionary. I don't think that it was all that progressive because of the element of fascism. But if there's any comrades that have any other opinions, they can also raise their hand on that. But that's just my uh, my answer to that. Yeah, in the clip from the movie, he mentions how Germany was developing in a different way from the rest of, I guess, the West. Um, and it almost sounds like it was like alternative economic system or something. Germany was still developing its own capitalist society. Can anyone fill in what the differences or a bit more of how Germany was developing at the time that was in contrast to the rest of the world? Um, I appreciate it. I'd like to speak on that. Yeah, Comrade before. Angelo, go ahead. Okay. Let us not forget that while American corporations were being built uh, during the period of, uh, of Teddy Roosevelt, the trust, antitrust legislation, American corporations that most of them were built during the, the building of the railroads in the late 1800s, during this period of time, industry like Krupp was still small in Germany. I just want you to, to think about that. It was, at, it was way behind the United States. But yet, after World War I, those domestic capitalists, they call them comprador capitalists, began to grow. They were the ones to fund Hitler. So I just wanted to bring that up. Thank you. That's all. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. One comment I would like to make is before it was broken up into ExxonMobil and all the other companies these days, um, Standard Oil at one point owned like 80% of the global 
oil supply and wells. And a lot of these other large American monopolies also had these foreign overseas holdings. And as Comrade Angelo was saying, Germany was up and coming. So you had corporations like U.S. Steel, Bethlehem and others that were able to develop some of that early German state um, steel. And it was also a lucrative market back then to develop. Yes, comrade, about the difference between uh, the imperialist bloc of Germany or central powers and the triple entente, which is France and UK and Russia. Okay, uh, Germany was very jealous of the colonial empires of the UK and France. The UK, as you know, owned um, a lot of um, the world in Southern Asia, Southeast Asia, and all over really. France they owned from the Mediterranean to the equator in Africa. But um, Germany only had a small section of Southern Africa, I think Namibia, right? And they wanted way more. So that was um, always a complaint. You know, you guys have all this and we don't have anything. So that, that was a problem between the two blocks, imperialist blocks. Yeah, the sun never set on the British Empire, and I believe, I forgot who said it, but one of the German, either generals or politicians says, we want our place in the sun. That's, okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I just wanted to expand on that a little bit about the German Empire, just so comrades know kind of where they spread out to. Uh, comrade is right in Africa. Uh, it was Namibia. There was also Tanzania, uh, German Tanzania at one point. Um, and then in the Pacific, there was German Samoa, which I believe was um, took over possibly by the Japanese when we get towards World War II. Um, but they also had a couple of other places in the um, in the Pacific as well, a couple of islands out there. But they were definitely behind. The rest of the European empires at the time, and were really only comparable to something like the United States, which basically made a blitz in the world um, in 1898, like we saw in the last class. So Germany was still kind of a rising power, um, but a lot of it was more at home, domestic in Germany, um, and that's when they sought that they had to um, do expansion. So it's interesting that this period of time is now being used as what's going on right now. The difference between what happened in 1914 and 2023 is we went through a whole period that we never went through before on, this, on the planet. And that was called the struggle against fascism. That changed everything. 1936, 37 at the seventh Congress of the Comintern changed everything on how communists view the role of imperialism and where it exists and how it falls and compared to the fight against fascism. So everything changed with that. So there are people today in the communist movement who are trying to say this is 1914 all over again. And Lenin said this, of course he said it at that time and he was correct at that time. But Lenin did not live after 1920s. 
he passed away in the 20s, so he didn't experience the anti-fascist movement and what that meant for us. Thank you. Thank you, Comrade Angelo. Uh, to start off, uh, the World War I period is probably one of the most fascinating periods to really study outside of like everything else that we always delve into. And as uh, a little bit of background onto why World War I is such an interesting period is that it was quite literally the period that was the climax of both the first and the second industrial revolution, the climax of uh, the colonial period, the period of imperialism. And it was the period where we saw the height of the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, the emergence of the republics, and, you know, the fall of, you know, uh, feudalism altogether, yeah, with World War I being its final uh, death now. Uh, one of the things to really think about is that, as a communist, is that this period is really where we saw so many historical changes that still impact us to this day. And probably one of the things a person should be looking into, you know, to kind of get an understanding of what the uh, time period was like yeah, outside of reading books, I would suggest a little uh, BBC mini documentary called uh, Fall of the Eagles. And it's basically covering uh, the fall of the three, uh, you know, empires that use eagles, their uh, references flags, which is the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians. Charmingly, it, you know, shows you the behind the scenes between the uh, whole cluster cluck that was the royals. And it even shows the uh, Lenin himself as being starred as, if anyone's a fan of Star Trek, uh, Jean-Luc Picard or Sir Patrick Stewart. So, you know, give that a look sometime. Thank you, comrade. Okay, so I just wanted to bring up like a thing that I think is often overlooked. This is kind of touching on what uh, comrade general secretary had said, you know, in an imperialist system, it's the imperialist of all countries working together to basically destroy the working class movement, you know, and in, in this modern sense, Russia is not taking part in the spoils. And that's something that is seldom mentioned by people who are attacking, you know, everything going on now as similar to 1914. There is imperialists dividing up the world, but the Russian bourgeoisie is not a part of it. You know, they're shunned, they're, you know, taken aback, everything like this. They're not they're not comparable to, you know, people like, you know, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, big corporate buy, uh, Bayer, you know, it's not even comparable. And it's just funny how people still kind of beat on this same drum of foreign policy equals imperialism, which is an incorrect analysis. That's all. Thank you, comrade. Uh, so uh, what I was thinking about is, uh, so you mentioned that the British had a period of uh, decreasing economic uh, dynamism relative to their competitors. What do you think is the biggest driver? What is the biggest driver in the decline of British iron steel production? Would anyone like to answer that? Uh, partially so. For my studies on uh, British imperialism in India, Mainly when they had a decrease in any kind of a resource production in the mainland, it was because they were offshoring that to uh, the colonies or extracting it through uh, trade negotiations, through, uh, you know, free trade and all that. While there were protectivist and uh, tariff measures in place to, you know, protect uh, domestic uh, manufacturing in some places, the developing capitalist forces within the country during that period would be fighting for more free trade measures to basically uh, make profit hand over fist. So to answer the question, it would be because of, uh, well, capitalism, simply put. 
Thank you for that, comrade. Yes, comrade, good evening. So I'm going to touch on uh, what Angelo was saying and what uh, comrade T34 from California was saying. You know, those uh, ultra-left, KKE, for example, and a whole bunch of others that follow them, uh, always say that the actual conflict is a remake of World War I, and communists should not take sides between two imperialist uh, blocs fighting each other for the spoils. Okay, so let's go to 1914. We got the central powers, you know, Austria, um, Germany, uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, stuff like that, right? They all, of course, own a lot of colonies in Africa. Germany did much of it in Southern Africa. Okay, then we got the Triple Entente, right? France, UK, and Russia. Plenty of colonies as well. Okay. Um, economically, they're pretty much the same. And um, so now we transplant this into today. How are you going to compare the Western powers, you know, NATO, the United States, and all the Western countries, uh, and Russia? Russia, all they have is their natural resources. They do not have any uh, colonies, obviously. Uh, they don't have semi colonies or neo colonies like. Uh, the West has all over the world. 90 seconds. And, uh, you cannot compare those two. Okay. On one side, you have a block of, of powers that want the natural resources of Russia. They want to dismember it. On top of this, of course, you have uh, the existence of fascism, which did not happen in 1914, which is uh, installing a fascist regime that oppressed people there, killed communists and all that. So for us, there is no question on what side we should take, who we should support. It's a Russian side and a Donbass because one, war of national liberation, an anti-fascist war. It's that simple. So copy-paste 1914, it's totally uh, not Marxist. It's dogmatic. It's like a, you don't take into account the reality of the situation. You just go through slogans of 100 years ago and copy-paste them into today. That it is totally opposite of Marxism. That's all, comrades. Thank you, comrade. We'll take one more hand and then we'll go back to the discussion. I just wanted to also touch on that point. Um, I think that at the time, you know, obviously the Russian, Russia was a, under the czar and i believe this the czar was a was a ally of europe and the western powers from what i understand but um i mean the thing is in today's day and age i mean the bourgeoisies can also contradict each other there exists a contradiction between national bourgeoisies and countries like you know russia or iran or Syria all have a national bourgeoisie. They are a bourgeoisie, but their interests contradict the interests of the Western bourgeoisie. And that's where, that's kind of what I wanted to, to add. So American intervention, this is the second section. Um, once again, gonna watch a video from Untold History of the United States. I think that this is the longest clip, about 11 minutes. So I'll try to get through the rest of this um, section pretty fast once we get through it. 
um, just so that we can make sure that we get this all done on time tonight. So this is, uh, again, uh, following on the World War I and the American intervention uh, during it. Woodrow Wilson was the embodiment of the Henry James pre-war ideal of hope and civilization. First elected president in 1912, he echoed most Americans' sympathy for the Allies. Britain, France, Italy, Japan, and Russia against the Central Powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey. But he didn't join the war explaining... We have to be neutral, since otherwise our mixed populations would wage war on each other. He won re-election in 1916 with the slogan, He kept us out of war, but he would soon reverse himself. Wilson was an interesting man. He'd been president of Princeton University and governor of New Jersey. Descended from Presbyterian ministers on both sides of his family, he exhibited a strong moralistic streak and sometimes a self-righteous inflexibility. He shared a missionary's sense of America's global role and believed in the export of democracy, even to countries unwilling to receive it. He shared as well his Southern forebears' sense of white racial superiority, taking steps to resegregate the federal government when a delegation of African-Americans petitioned him, he replied, Segregation is not a humiliation, but a benefit. The old anti-imperialist William Jennings Bryan, now serving as Wilson's Secretary of State, tried to maintain America's sense of neutrality in the war. But Wilson rejected his efforts to bar U.S. citizens from traveling on ships of countries at war. Britain, which for nearly a century now controlled the Atlantic with its superior naval power, had launched a blockade of northern Europe. Germany retaliated with a highly effective U-boat campaign that seemed to be able to tilt the balance of power on the high seas. In May 1915, a German U-boat sank the British liner Lusitania, leaving 1,200 dead, including 120 Americans. It was a shock there were calls for america to go to war but despite initial disclaimers it was found that the ship was indeed in violation of neutrality laws and carrying a large cargo of arms to britain brian demanded that wilson condemn the british blockade of germany as well as the german attack seen both as infringements of neutral rights when wilson refused brian resigned in protest Wilson was increasingly coming to believe that if the U.S. did not join the war, it would be denied a role in shaping the post-war world. And in January 1917, he dramatically delivered the first formal presidential address to the Senate since the days of George Washington. He called for peace without victory based on core American principles of self-determination, freedom of the seas, and an open world with no entangling alliances. The centerpiece of such a world would be a League of Nations that would enforce the peace. Wilson's idealism has always been suspect because it seemed to be consistently undermined by his politics. American neutrality in this war was in effect more a principle than a practice. J.P. Morgan, along with Rockefeller of Standard Oil, had been one of the two titans of American finance since the Civil War. He died in 1913, but his son, J.P. Morgan Jr., effectively served as America's banker to the British Empire between 1915 and 17, 
when the U.S. entered the war. Initially, the United States would not allow American bankers to float loans to the belligerents, knowing that this would undermine America's stated neutrality. But in September 1915, in his first term, Wilson reversed himself. And in that month, Morgan floated a $500 million loan to Britain and France. By 1917, the British War Office had borrowed close to $2.5 billion from the House of Morgan and other U.S. banks on Wall Street. Only $27 million had been loaned to Germany. By 1919, after the war, Britain found itself owing the U.S. a staggering sum of $4.7 billion, $61 billion today. Morgan also became the sole purchasing agent for the British Empire in the U.S., placing some $20 billion in purchase orders and taking a 2% commission on the price of all goods, favoring friends like DuPont Chemical, Remington, and Winchester Arms. Socialist Eugene Debs had consistently urged workers to oppose the war, observing, Let the capitalists do their own fighting and furnish their own corpses, and there will never be another war on the face of the earth. Whether for financial or idealistic reasons, in April 1917, Woodrow Wilson asked Congress for a declaration of war, saying the world must be made safe for democracy. Six senators voted against it, including Robert La Follette of Wisconsin and 50 representatives in the House, including Jeanette Rankin of Montana, the first woman ever elected to Congress. Opponents attacked Wilson as a tool of Wall Street. We are putting a dollar sign on the American flag, charged the respected Senator George Norris of Nebraska. Opposition ran deep, but Wilson got his wish. Yet, despite government appeals for a million volunteers, reports of the horrors of trench warfare dampened enthusiasm, and only 73,000 men signed up in the first six weeks, forcing Congress to institute a draft. As 1918 dawned, it looked as if the Central Powers might indeed win the war and defeat the Allies, which threatened to leave the U.S. bankers in a huge financial hole. America rallied with patriotic liberty bond drives, and many of the nation's leading progressives, John Dewey, Walter Lippmann, took Wilson's side. It was the Midwestern Republicans like La Follette and Norris who understood that the war was a death knell for meaningful reform at home. And Congress demonstrated this in passing some of the most repressive legislation in the country's history, the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918, which curbed speech and created a climate of intolerance towards dissent. University professors who opposed the war were either fired or cowed into silence. Hundreds were jailed for speaking out, including industrial workers of the world leader, Big Bill Haywood. Eugene Debs protested repeatedly and was finally arrested in June 1918, saying, Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder, and that is war in a nutshell. 
The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. Before being sentenced, he eloquently addressed the corporal. Your Honor, years ago, I recognized my kinship within all living beings. And I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on Earth. I said then, and I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. While mere there is a soul in prison, I am not free. The judge sentenced Debs to 10 years in prison. He served three from 1919 to 21. With Wilson's permission, the Department of Justice destroyed the IWW, the Wobblies, while some Americans marched off to war to the strains of the hit song, Over There. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over The Wobblies there. responded with a parody of onward Christian soldiers titled Christians at War, which ended with, history will save you that pack of goddamn fools. 165 of their leaders were charged with conspiring to hinder the draft and encourage desertion. Big Bill Haywood fled to revolutionary Russia. Others followed. German Americans were singled out with particular animosity. Schools, many of which now demanded loyalty oaths from teachers, banned German from their curricula and orchestras, dropped German composers from their repertoires just as French fries would later be renamed Freedom Fries by congressional xenophobes furious at French opposition to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. During World War I, hamburgers were renamed Liberty Sandwiches, and sauerkraut was called Liberty Cabbage. German measles, Liberty measles, and German shepherds became police dogs. The warriors were to bring unprecedented collusion between large corporations and the government in an attempt to stabilize the economy, control unfettered competition, and guarantee profits to munition makers, who were sometimes characterized as merchants of death. It was more than a year after declaring war that U.S. troops finally arrived in Europe in May 1918, six months before the war's end when they helped beleaguered French forces turn the tide along the Marne River. With its manpower and its industrial might, the U.S. presence had an enormous psychological effect on the war. <coughs> and demoralized the Germans who finally surrendered. The long, dreary war ended on November 11, 1918. The losses were staggering. Of the two million American soldiers who reached France, over 116,000 died, and 204,000 were wounded. European losses were truly beyond reason. Up to an estimated eight million soldiers and six to 10 million civilians dead the latter often due to disease and starvation. All right, and now we'll look at the other parts about the intervention in the war. So what did it do for American imperialism? So the United States of America prior to the 1910s had relatively no interest in military interference in Europe. 
It was more concerned with what it could obtain control over in the Americas, Pacific, and Africa. There was a general sentiment of just letting Europe fight their own wars. The First World War presented American imperialism with many benefits. The United States could profit off of the war to begin with by selling arms to the Allies and create European reliance on the United States. Uh, U.S. exports to the Allies grew from 2.4 billion in 1913 to 6.2 billion in 1917. The United States could be involved in, potentially even lead, the talks and treaties following the war, creating institutions and programs to benefit itself and create hegemony. And the United States could use the war and the concurrent Bolshevik Revolution, which happened in 1917, to crack down on the working class with the Espionage and Sedition Acts and more. We have a couple of uh, slides here from that book again by William Z. Foster. The United States during the early years of the war. When war broke out in Europe, the policy of the American bourgeoisie was to play neutral, to watch its imperialist rivals kill each other off and to furnish them with the necessary munitions with which to do the job, meanwhile making huge profits and blood money from the terrible slaughter. At the time the war began, the United States was in the midst of an economic crisis, but the flood of war orders soon had the industries humming busily again. Profits piled sky high, the monopolies expanded and multiplied, and before the war ended, there were 20,000 new millionaires in the United States. From August 1914 to the end of 1918, the cost of living rose very rapidly with rage rates dragging, and the workers were in a very militant strike mood. But the AFL leaders, obedient as ever to the basic interests of the capitalists, re-echoed the latter's neutrality slogans and damped down the efforts of the more and more impoverished workers to organize and strike. More than most of the 4,924 strikes that took place during 1915 and 1916 were spontaneous, the work of the rank and file themselves. A notable struggle was the national eight-hour movement of the four railroad brotherhoods in 1916, which culminated in the passage of the Adamson Law, a substantial victory for the 350,000 workers involved. The IWW, unlike the AFL, carried out an active strike policy with strikes, among others, of 8,000 oil workers in Bayonne, 15,000 iron miners in Minnesota, and 6,000 steel workers in Youngstown. The Socialist Party, in August 1914, adopted a resolution denouncing the senseless conflict, expressing opposition to this and all other wars waged upon any pretext whatsoever, and called upon the United States, while carrying out a policy of strict neutrality, to use all its efforts to have the war ended as quickly as possible. It also demanded that the question of war should be referred to the people in a general referendum before the government could engage in hostilities. In December 1914, the party also proposed a whole program upon the basis of which the war should be settled. This pacifist program, which did not discriminate between just and unjust wars, was supported in practice by a general agitation against war and against the campaign to bring the United States into the struggle. The left wing especially led a strong fight against conscription. 
American SP leadership promptly exonerated the Social Democrats in Europe of war guilt. In a statement on September 19, 1914, the National Executive Committee declared, We do not presume to pass judgment upon the conduct of our brother parties in Europe. We realize that they are the victims of the present vicious industrial, political, and military system, and that they did the best they could under the circumstances. The left wing of the SP, while not yet clearly differentiating itself from the official pacifist policy of the party, began to sharpen up its anti-war activity. In doing this, it utilized principally the columns of the International Socialist Review. On November 26, 1916, the Socialist Propaganda League of America, an SP left-wing organization with headquarters in Boston, issued a manifesto sharply repudiating the war and condemning the treason of the right opportunists of the Second International. Lenin replied to this document, greeting its general line and expressing the desire to combine our struggle with yours against the conciliators and for true internationalism. One of the outstanding events of the years just before the entry of the United States into the war was the arrest in San Francisco of Tom Mooney and Warren K. Billings. They were charged with responsibility for the bomb explosion in the Preparedness Day Parade on July the 22nd, 1916, which killed nine and wounded 40 persons. In the prevailing war hysteria, Mooney and Billings were shamefully framed up and sentenced to die, a sentence which later, under the pressure of the masses, including the revolutionary workers of Russia and other countries, was commuted to life imprisonment. The generation-long struggle of Mooney and Billings for freedom had begun. This country entered the war on April 6, 1917, three weeks after the world was startled by the bourgeois revolution in Russia on March 14th. The reason why the United States went into the war was the fear on the part of the American bourgeoisie that the Anglo-French-Russian alliance would lose the struggle under the heavy blows of the German armies. The Wall Street monopolists, who could handle the declining British Empire, feared the rise of a far more powerful German Empire. The latter would have jeopardized their whole structure of foreign trade and investments. Hence, they plunged the United States into the war, eventually turning the tide against Germany. Just five months before this, Woodrow Wilson got himself re-elected president with the hypocritical slogan, quote, he kept us out of war, unquote. This slogan was a pledge that the United States would continue to stay out, but as soon as Wall Street saw its vital interests threatened, it cynically trampled upon all such pacifist demagogy and flung the nation into the wholesale slaughter. In doing this, the capitalists were quite unconcerned that the American people had repeatedly showed that they were opposed to going into the war. Monopolist America, as Wilson declared, was now out to, quote, make the world safe for democracy, unquote. All right. And with that, we'll go ahead and stop for the uh, second round of questions and comments. Uh, what the difference between go. like the, the left wing socialist the in the left-wing socialist uh, opposition to the war and like they criticized the pacifist uh, policy of the main socialist party what's the difference between the two i can go ahead and answer this to the best of my abilities so the left opposition in the socialist party of the united states um was the one that uh went against the uh, war uh, very uh, militantly and said to keep the United States out of the imperialist war. And uh, the big difference between them and the pacifists is that uh, the, there were pacifist people in America that didn't necessarily play too big of an issue other than not recognizing inter-imperialist nature of the war, I guess. But the you know the general social democratic thing of just fighting for your own country in this war um, went against the very ideas of, of you know, socialism and anti-imperialism itself. It was basically just giving right into the bourgeoisie.
And another thing that I just wanted to add real quick is that I think that the position of the American Socialist uh, Party back then at the time um, was actually one that I think most Americans nowadays when it comes to um, the present war in Europe, which is to keep the United States out of it, keep us out of imperialist wars. Even if we're the biggest empire on the planet, it's a worthy cause to um, keep our hands off of these conflicts. So I hope that that uh, first part of my response answered your question. Yeah, I just wanted to point out there was a section in the video where they kept showing signs uh, calling the Germans uh, Huns, H-U-N. And I just, uh, you know, I just wanted to, what that's referring to is uh, the um, Attila the Hun when, the, you know, when the Mongolian uh, barbarians uh, conquered um, into uh, Europe. Um, but I, I bring that up because it's interesting. Um, uh, today we're hearing uh, Russians being referred to as orcs. Uh, the same as, you know, the, the Taliban, they referred to the Hazara ethnic group as Mongols. You know, there's this trend of, um, you know, demonizing your enemy by relating them to these Eastern barbarians, as they would say. So I just wanted to point that out as, you know, they're just making propaganda against the whole, a whole uh, national uh, group rather than the the government, the the imperialist Germans at the time. That's Thank all. you, Comrade. On that same note, uh, don't go looking at what they what we depicted the Japanese as in World War II. Uh, in the video, there's the mention of Jeanette Rankin. So as a native Montanan, I'm under obligation to give a little extra context. It's just what I do. Um, Jeanette Rankin was a big part of the suffragette movement at the time. She was the first woman elected to Congress, and she found it as her obligation to vote against uh, World War I. As the first woman voted into Congress, she also tried to improve working conditions, especially after the speculator mine disaster in Butte, Montana, my hometown. But interesting fact, she was also the only person in Congress to vote against um, declaring war on the Japanese in World War II. That's it. I just had to give that a little bit of a... Okay, that's good. It's good. And I'd like to add something to that just real quick. I think it's also interesting, uh, La Follette and some of the Republicans were against that war. And it shows that there are times in history um, when Republicans are against imperialist conflict. Um, you know, nowadays, I think that it's a mixed thing. I think that most of the establishment Republicans that are in are just as much war hawks as the Democrats are. But um, I wanted to bring that up, too, because I know that La Follette was uh, something that we mentioned and something that we mentioned historically having worked with back in the coalition building class in March. So I wanted to point that out. Thank you, Comrade Cameron. I think whatever the American ruling class is claiming uh, throughout history, after the First World War, the Second World War, the so-called hands of uh, policy in Europe is not true. It, is, uh, it can be empirically demonstrated. Uh, during uh, the Great October Socialist Revolution, America sent 13 out of the 13 countries against uh, 
the uh, governments are underlining. They, they caused immense destruction of uh, infrastructure, and they also fought the Red Army. That is one of the examples. And second of all, uh, if America intervened in the Second World War, it was to control uh, the European countries uh, and uh, control them uh, for the forthcoming NATO establishment and uh, also make uh, big inroads into their national uh, economies through American corporations. So they were not hands-off. That was not hands-off policy. Uh, and uh, the third one is that throughout the Second World War, the, after the Second World War, the United States government and the CIA has, have overthrown all elected governments in Asia, Latin America, and Africa, which is totally, even it's not even bourgeois. So how is this uh, claim to be verified that the, the, the government is pursuing a policy of hundreds of policy in Europe? It's not true. It's a total lie. And uh, I think my conclusion is that the United States government does not even have a clear position against fascism, because what's happening in Ukraine? They destroyed the labor union. It's illegal uh, to to form unions in Ukraine, and the the United States is a major backer of uh, the, the the Zelensky government. So is that hands off policy? So I think we sh- we should never take that. Uh, we should not have any uh, misgivings or. Uh, we should never be deceived by, by the policy of the government. It's not neutral. It's always barbarian. It's more or less savage. It's a savage government. All right. Yeah. Um, I don't think I said that the United States um, had a handoff policy other than somewhat uh, before the war. And then there was somewhat of a um, there was a we didn't intervene in Europe militarily um, between World War One. World War II, other than in the Bolshevik Revolution during the Civil War, um, which we'll get to in this next section. But, um, you know, economically and politically, um, we were in the process of creating hegemony uh, during the interwar period. And so the government wasn't hands off. Um, The pacifists and the social democrats, to some extent, um, in the communist movement were pretty hands off. And I think that's where I said that. But another thing I wanted to say real quick. which isn't necessarily on topic for our class, but it is for this series, is I think that World War II is a little bit of a different and more more nuanced thing in that surely the United States and the United Kingdom and the other imperialist powers of the time uh, used the war to further their own imperialism and further extend their hegemony. And I mean, things followed that, like the creation of the CIA, the uh, NATO alliance, the United Nations. So um, definitely, you know, resulted in some things, but a lot like the American Revolution resulting in like indigenous genocide and continued slavery and stuff like that. It was still a progressive event at the time to fight against the fascist powers um, in Europe and Asia. And I think that the USSR um, really needed the American and uh, just uh, Western help in that war against the um, against Nazi Germany and the other Axis powers. Thank you, comrade. 
Oh, yeah, I just wanted to make a comment that um, it never, the the capitalists that run this country never fell to uh, start wars just to, I can't think of a good way to put it, um, to start wars to profit off of. Yeah, it went much better in my head. All right, I'll pass. Thank you, Comrade Chris. Um, yes, uh, these, uh, with a uh, comment about the World War II, like uh, after the war, the indirect detour resulted to the decline of colonial empires after World War II, and like India became independent, and uh, like uh, <clears throat> not, uh, the uh, Indonesia and uh, African colonies became independent, and like uh, like uh, Italy's uh, colonies, uh, like Libya, became independent. So that was a progressive uh, result of the war, the decline of colonialism. So yeah, this is still relevant. Um, my understanding is that World War One was really the war that brought American capitalism concentrated. That uh, America went from a debtor society to a creditor society, as it was mentioned, they gave a lot of loans to the uh, allies, ally powers in Europe. And in fact, the I think a lot of those loans were uh, written off, as in they didn't have to pay for them. Um, but the American people did have to pay for them, but not the American capitalists, because as it was said in that video, they made a lot of profit. In fact, they were able to purchase those uh, ships that, uh, from the American government, I think J.P. Morgan purchased a lot of them, which would later sell them back to the American government uh, 20 years later, like, um, you know, at like a third of the price. So this is really, I think, what we see America becoming that kind of monopolist power that uh, Lenin talks about, you know, as the highest stage of capitalism. That's all. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yes. Uh, what was uh, that... Uh... What Lenin said in his message about a uh, passage about the war that uh, about like not to mistake a uh, like a, the fatherland slogan to a democratic war or war national defense or something like that. What did he say again? In earlier passage from Lenin, we talked about earlier. Yeah. So what Lenin was saying earlier was that uh, Kautsky and a few of the other Russian social democrats were claiming that World War I was a defense of the Russian fatherland, that, you know, Russians needed to support this war to defend the nation, um, which is not what was happening in World War I, obviously, that this is an imperialist war that Russia got into it trying to gain more, um, you know, resources and access. So there's a legitimate defense of the nation war. That's World War II, you know, when the Nazis invaded the Soviets. That's the defense of the fatherland. Not, I'm going to join an imperialist war because I hope to get some spoils. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, it was kind of just answered. I, was, I wondered if the U.S. Uh, involvement in World War One was justified. Okay. Um, and I'm glad that you kind of had your answer, your question answered there. Um, if you need any further explanation, please let us know. Yeah, I want to touch on what was saying. Uh, you know, there was an example right before World War One, two years before. There was a war in the Balkans. You know, the Balkans like uh, Yugoslavia, Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, stuff like that, right? 
And they went to war against the Ottoman Empire. And at the time, Lenin supported them against the Ottoman Empire because it was a war of national liberation. It wasn't the same as two years later. You couldn't say in Russia that you were fighting a war of national liberation. What is right, it was later on during World War II, not then. But two years before, yes, it was. So you can see the difference too. Lenin talked about that. Thank you, Comrade. Yeah, I don't believe the question was quite answered. Um, it's kind of subjective, but if you're a Marxist, any Marxist-led war is for people's liberation. When capitalists fight war, it's for any form of greed. So I'm going to say that, in my opinion, no, it wasn't justified, but nation's going to nation. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that as well in regards to was it justified or not. You know, the U.S. entered at such a late stage that if it really, you know, it, it plays this part that we're going to you know, democracy, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. They basically were the club squad. You know, and man went over the end of 1917, beginning of 1918. You know, they did want the German economy, they wanted the Hungarian economy, and they knew. They were naive to think that, you know, the, the Kaiser will last and the Tsar was going to last. You know, they already had their people on the ground. You know, they knew who was going to become the next ruling. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be able to work with them. That's all. So the last section is about the interwar period. Um, this is between 1918 and 1939, um, kind of 42 for us because that's... Um, when we got into the Second World War. But this is describing what it was like, um, how the U.S. used its, furthered its imperialism during this point in history. So another uh, two clips real quick from the untold history of the United States, because there's one from one episode and then one from the next, and then we'll get back to the text. When he arrived in Europe in December 1918 for the Paris Peace Conference, Wilson was mobbed by adoring crowds, two million in Paris. When he entered Rome, the streets were sprinkled with golden sand as per ancient tradition. The Italians proclaimed him the God of Peace. 27 nations met in Paris on January the 12th, 1919. Wilson was a star. The world was going to be remade. It was indeed his most glorious moment in time. But as with Alexander in Babylon, Caesar in Rome, and Napoleon on the frontiers of Europe, a zenith of success had been reached. Wilson considered himself the personal instrument of God, and the peace conference was the crowning moment of his divine mission. In reinterpreting World War I ideologically along the lines of the wars of the French Revolution a century earlier, Wilson was claiming that this was a war to change humanity, a war to end all war. In an address to the United States Senate that year, he was to say, America's world role has come by no plan of our conceiving, but by the hand of God. It was of this that we dreamed in our birth. America shall indeed in truth show the way. In Wilson's view, America's manifest destiny was no longer a case of continental expansion. It was now a divinely ordained mission to humanity. 
This idea of saving humanity became essential to the American national myth in all subsequent wars. In an attempt to counter Lenin's revolutionary appeal, Wilson had, one year earlier, while the war was still raging, announced a set of international democratic principles, including free trade, open seas, and open agreements between nations that would become the basis of a new international peace. He called this the 14 points. The Germans surrendered on the basis of Wilson's 14 points, believing he would guard them from dismemberment by the Allies. They even changed their form of government, adopting a republic and opposed the Kaiser, who soon disappeared into exile. The United States was the new dominant force in the world. Although it had been a debtor nation in 1914, owing $3.7 billion, by 1918 it had become a creditor nation and was owed $3.8 billion by its allies. Nonetheless, the old multinational empires that had stood since the Middle Ages had no interest in Wilson's idealism. They wanted revenge and money and colonies. British Prime Minister Lloyd George noted that in the United States, not a shack had been destroyed. French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, whose country had lost over one million soldiers, commented, Mr. Wilson bores me with his 14 points. Why, God Almighty has only 10. As a result of this attitude, several of Wilson's ill-defined 14 points would be removed from the Treaty of Versailles. Britain, France, and Japan divided the former German colonies in Asia and Africa, and paying lip service to the promised self-determination of the Arabs who had revolted against the Ottoman Empire, Winston Churchill and the Foreign Office divided that empire, creating new client states such as Mesopotamia, which was arbitrarily renamed Iraq. They have only one suspicion. We'll let them drive the Turks out and then move in ourselves. I've told them that that's false, that we've no ambitions in Arabia. Have we? I'm not a politician, thank God. Have we any ambition in Arabia, Dryden? Difficult question, sir. I want to know, sir, if I can tell them in your name that we've no ambitions in Arabia. Certainly. The prospect of a future Jewish homeland in Palestine was also established in a letter from British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to the Jewish banker Lord Rothschild. A protectorate was established by the League of Nations over Palestine. Approximately 85% of the native population was Palestinian Arab and under 8% Jewish. The old empires sanitized their actions by calling these new colonies mandates, and Wilson went along with it by arguing that the Germans had ruthlessly exploited their colonies, whereas the allies had treated their colonies humanely. An assessment that was greeted with incredulity by the inhabitants of French Indochina. Ho Chi Minh, as a young man, rented a tuxedo and bowler hat and visited Wilson carrying a petition for Vietnamese independence. Like other third world leaders in attendance, Ho would learn that liberation would only come through armed struggle, not Woodrow Wilson's largesse. Although Lenin was not invited to Paris, Russia's presence cast a pall over the meeting. Lenin called Wilson a smoother over. He said, 
Only genuine revolutionaries may be trusted. And as the delegates sat, communists took over Bavaria and Hungary and threatened Berlin and Italy. Lenin's call for a worldwide revolution was heard in the Third World in lands as far away as China and Latin America. Focused intently on his League of Nations, which he considered essential to preventing future war, Wilson failed to secure the kind of non-punitive treaty he publicly advocated. As Britain and France perversely applied Wilson's concept of self-determination against Germany, leaving millions of citizens stranded outside their new shrunken border. In its famous war guilt clause, the Treaty of Versailles placed the entire blame for starting the war on Germany and not the other colonial empires and required them to pay almost $33 billion to the Allies in war reparations, more than double what Germany expected. Prominent in Wilson's delegation was Thomas Lamont, the House of Morgan's leading partner upon whom Wilson relied. Lamont would make sure that Germany's payments to Britain and France would in turn allow them to repay the fortune they had borrowed on Wall Street to survive the war. In reality, then, the entire new structure of international finance was built on the shaky foundation of German war reparations, which would shortly contribute to a German economic collapse out of which Adolf Hitler would emerge. As the 1920s progressed, prosperity came to rest increasingly on the shakiest of foundations, unprecedented borrowing, massive speculation, and German war reparations. Agriculture was depressed throughout the decade. Auto manufacturing and road building slowed, housing investment declined, and the gap between rich and poor grew sharply. Capital scrambled for profitable speculative outlets. To help pay Germany's war reparations, German Foreign Minister Walther Rathenau, a prominent Jewish industrialist, expanded economic, diplomatic, and even military ties with communist Russia, forging a bridge between the two nations that had been left out of Versailles in order to rebuild their war-ravaged societies. This infuriated not only England and France, but members of Germany's thuggish right-wing Freikorps who were already up in arms about Germany paying its reparations. They assassinated Rathenau in 1922. Germany's economy suffered an inflation unlike any ever experienced in history. Wheelbarrows full of worthless German marks were burned for firewood. By 1923, a bankrupt Germany could no longer pay reparations to France and Britain, who in turn asked for relief on the billions in war debts they owed the U.S. government. Absolutely not, replied the Spartan new Republican president, Calvin Coolidge. By 1924, Europe's economies teetered on the edge of collapse. Then, and again four years later, commissions of bankers and businessmen led by Morgan and his allies drew up plans for German economic recovery that would guarantee continued, though more manageable, reparations payments. In essence, the U.S. was loaning money to Germany so it could pay reparations to France and Britain, who then used the money to service their war debts to the U.S. The bankers got rich, the people stayed poor. 
By 1933, Germany, though paying enormous reparations, owed even more money to the Allies than it had in 1924. It was in this climate of economic crisis in the West and communist revolution in the East that a new monster was born. It was called Nazism. All right. Now, American action during the interwar years. Following the end of World War I, the United States intervened in the Russian Civil War, and 13,000 Americans were sent to the Arkhangelsk and Vladivostok regions uh, of Russia. However, following this, there is a period of time from 1920 to 1942 in which America is generally thought to be isolationist. This isn't entirely correct. The United States continued its intervention in Nicaragua and in the rest of the world had established a leading presence as a world power and held some economic hegemony over Europe. We continued to be imperialist, but the full-blown wars weren't actively occurring. It is worthwhile to note where we did not intervene. We refused to aid Spanish Republicans against the fascist forces of Francisco Franco, backed by Nazis and Italian fascists. Roosevelt later called this a mistake. We also did not intervene against Italy and Africa or Japan and China. We didn't intervene where it would have helped people. We did where our interests were at stake. Now on the League of Nations. In the Treaty of Versailles, the League of Nations was founded as it was envisioned by Woodrow Wilson. It was the first intergovernmental worldwide organization. It was like a predecessor to the United Nations and was supposedly aimed at world peace and democracy. Most of post-war Europe joined the League of Nations, as did parts of the Americas, Africa, Asia, and Oceania. Despite being the idea of an American president, the Senate of the United States voted against joining the League, and the United States never did. Weimar Germany joined in 1926, and the Soviet Union joined in 1934. So interesting to note that League of Nations was envisioned by a U.S. president, and yet the United States never joined, but the Soviet Union actually did. The League never actually intervened militarily in any conflict, and Germany, Italy, Japan, and Spain were never expelled for their aggressions, though they did leave the League in the 1930s because there was nothing holding them accountable. They could just do it. The only country to ever be expelled was the Soviet Union for the Winter War, which was the last act of the League, um, because following World War II, um, it was, of course, dissolved, replaced with the United Nations. And lastly, U.S. imperialism in 1939. Prior to World War II, the United States was a world power. The intervention in World War I and the diplomatic overtures of Wilson allowed U.S. imperialism and economic hegemony to extend to Europe and open the door for further imperialist action in Europe. However, the United States did not yet have as much reach and power as it would following World War II. In the interwar years, the United States was more paranoid of the Soviet Union than Nazi Germany and American businessmen such as Ford, J.P. Morgan, and more aided the Nazis and American fascists planned to take over in 1933, but were thwarted. The fascist war on the world in 1939 would eventually draw the U.S. in. 
but the U.S. would make the most out of the war and American imperialism would grow exponentially. And this series will be continued in history of U.S. imperialism, World War II. And so with that, we'll go ahead and stop for our last round of questions and comments before we wrap up. Yes, so our country was founded in 1776, the American Revolution, around the same time as the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution. And Marx wrote about this revolution, said it was a positive event, the American Revolution, that is. And our country has developed since then. And the path we have developed within the last 150 years or so, especially during the 20th century as mentioned now, which was the beginning of, of the US empire, which already began in the 19th century. Plus you see the, the interests of our country shifting much like it is today, no longer being about so much the United States, but about the United States empire. And it goes to a message which I've heard at the school that there will be a second American revolution, a socialist revolution in the United States to continue the original re revolution. Thank you. And I just wanna to respond to that real quick um, because this is gonna be relevant. The next two weeks are gonna actually be classes on the American revolution, kind of going against the um, ultra left narrative on it that it was counter-revolutionary or it was re reactionary and trying to understand our actual roots as a nation and why the American Revolution was a progressive event. So thank you for that, comrade. Uh, yeah. Um, the, Go ahead. You know, before the United Nations, I forgot what it was called again, but if that were to exist still today, would it be, have become a an imperialist organization like the United Nations is today? Um, so one issue with the league was one, um, it didn't really have any real enforcement powers, kind of like how the, well, the UN at least in its current charter has the ability to send peacekeepers and um, send aid. And there's also the Security Council. I don't believe the league actually had any of that um, that's built into the United Nations today or even when it was founded back in the 1940s. But um, if someone more knowledgeable has any has a better answer, please go ahead. I think one of the reasons, the immediate reasons for the collapse of the League of Nations was the fascist Mussolini attack on Ethiopia in 1936 and uh, also Albania. So uh, it became ineffective. Uh, it did not have any legal mechanisms or practical mechanisms to really uh, stand up to, to its own uh, charter. Uh, and uh, second of all, what uh, I really don't like about uh, the hypocrisy of the ruling classes, they uh, supported reparations to, uh, by Germany uh, to France and United uh, Kingdom. But the United States was also uh, taken to International Court of Justice and they were asked to pay $6 billion to Nicaragua for reparations and about maybe $11 billion to Vietnam. 
which both of them were totally rejected, like like childish stuff. So this country, this country had no history of morality uh, in, inter- in the eyes of the international community. And what is very sad about this country is that the ordinary people keep voting, you know, and the labor union or the especially the FLCIO does not even stand to the aggressive and uh, very barbaric nature of the ruling classes of this country. So that is very a very sad chapter when history is going to show progress, when uh, working masses of the uh, planet are going to be victorious. It does not look good on the American working class. You leave aside the politicians and the de- demagogues. Thank you, comrade. Um, comrade, you have the floor. Go ahead. Yes, comrade. I want to talk about something interesting. Okay, about between Wilson and Lenin. Okay, so as you know, uh, the U.S. entered the war in the spring of 1917. Okay, in October we have the Bolshevik Revolution. The Communist Party takes power. Okay, the first thing they did was their program was peace, bread, and land. Okay, so peace. So making peace with Germany. All right, that's the thing. Okay, and uh, they negotiated with Germany. There was uh, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was a bad deal for the Soviet power because they would lose all of Ukraine and a whole bunch of stuff, and it was a bad deal. Okay, but it was necessary, and Lenin had to convince the so-called revolutionary left to do this. But before it was ratified by the Congress of Soviets, there was this dude named Raymond Robbins. He was the leader of the, the head of the American Red Cross. He acted as the US ambassador to Russia at the time, which didn't recognize Lenin's government. But that guy was a friend with Lenin. He saw him every day. And then he discussed and said, you know what? We could stay in the war. We could stay in the war on the side of the US against Germany if you guys give us some food and money and guns. And Lenin said, you know, Lenin agreed with that. Okay, when Robin sent it to Wilson, Wilson, hells no, we cannot deal with the Bolsheviks, you know. But Lenin was dialectical. He thought at the time, what's best for us? We don't have to be stuck in dogma. So he thought about it. But Wilson said no. So Lenin just let it go, of course. And then he signed the treaty with Germany and lost a lot of territory and all that. Okay, but that tells you something about dialectical. And Stalin, he remembered that 20 years later at the time of Hitler and at the time of England and, um, and France, you know, he knew what to do about making the best for USSR. That's all, comrade. Thank you, comrade. Time is 1029 p.m. I will throw it over for wrap up. So last year, our comrades know we were attacked and sabotaged by ultra left wreckers that tried to steal the PSMLS and destroy the PCUSA. They failed, but they're going to be held accountable. And there are still things they took from us that we've not got back, like videos, imagery, and audio. That's why we still need donations to the legal drive. So to donate, go to partyofcommunistusa.net slash donations. Check the box that says PSMLS legal funds and try to donate on Tuesday or Thursday so it's easier for us to sort through. That will go to the legal fund and anything helps, especially right now as we're going to be going into um, you know, further proceedings on this. Um, it seems like it's going to be um, a pretty serious case. Uh, we definitely got a fight on our hands when it comes to this. So it's going to take all of our support. Um, if you can give anything, 
um, whether it's a dollar or a couple dollars, it really does help us because one of the things that it does is it shows that there are people in support of the school, people that want to see the school continue to do what it does, and people that um, stand against the, the criminal actions of the wreckers last year. And it is crimi criminal. That's why we're pursuing them legally. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.